a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. going to talk about the use of testosterone for people that have had a cancer diagnosis and in particular the use of testosterone implants for people with a history of breast cancer that was hormone driven and I can't wait to welcome onto the podcast Dr Rebecca Glazer from America who is a real pioneer in this work. I want to say and tell you a little bit about how our podcast episodes come to happen they're never just my ideas and what I think you would want to hear. They're really all of your ideas because community is at the heart of everything we do. We would not have a podcast if it wasn't for all of you. We would not have our programs and workshops if it wasn't for all of your amazing feedback. One thing that always gets highlighted for me is that women want to know lots of different things. And so many of you want to know different things because our brains work differently, because you've tried different things, because you are at different stages, you're on different therapies, you've had different cancers. And so I want to make this an all-encompassing conversation. On episode 35, I interviewed Ms. Talaulika, who is an amazing menopause specialist, um, associate professor at University College London. And he summed up for us what we know to date what the evidence says, what all of the studies say about testosterone for people with a history of cancer. And for many of you, that was a great episode and you loved it for what it was. But there are some women who say, that was a great episode, Danny, but, and there is always a but for some of you. And I want to explore that but with you because there are women out there who are on testosterone therapy after their breast cancer diagnosis, especially if that breast cancer was hormone driven. And I know that's not many women, but they do exist. They're out there. And there are more and more women asking about it. And so I want to try and find the answers to that. That doesn't mean that this is going to be an insightful and really appropriate conversation for you where you're at right now. But for the right person listening, this could be really, really quite interesting. I know there are a lot of younger women out there who do a lot of research. And when they email me, they message me on social media. I always think, wow, they know so much more than I know. How can I help them find out more? And I think Dr. Rebecca Glaser, our guest for the show today, is one of those people that can help us bring a little bit more light into this conversation. And I know if you're a healthcare provider, an oncologist, a nurse, menopause specialist listening to the episode, this might also be of interest to you. In the show notes, we're going to link to resources, especially for healthcare professionals, which might be really great for you too. But before I want to welcome Rebecca onto the show, I want to say 
how did we get here? It's the end of July already. You might be having children off school if you've got children that are of the school age years. That might totally change or throw or better your routine. I can't remember I've forgotten to celebrate a year of podcasting with you. Not even that. We're almost into 14 months of releasing weekly episodes and I've not had a party. And the real reason is, is because I'm planning a great launch party in the autumn for all of us to launch my new website, menopauseandcancer.org. I'm not sure if you've listened and uh, looked for it. The new community interest company, we've applied for funding so that we can make all of our services, workshops, programs, online resources available to all the people that need it. And this has been a real team effort, mainly of many volunteers and ambassadors. And together, we've really, really, really started to get the ball rolling And I can't wait. I can't wait to invite you to the launch party. Uh, We're going to talk about it for anyone that can't join in live. And I want to bring together what I do on the podcast every single week in real life. I want to bring together a community of experts. I'll have a panel of experts with different backgrounds, different areas of expertises, and a whole group of all of us, our amazing community of women who've all had a different cancer diagnosis who are all finding themselves somehow in this menopause model. And I think that's the reason I'm planning, I'm looking ahead. That's the reason I haven't really celebrated one year of podcasting with you because I'm planning our next in real person celebration. I'm going to tell you much more about it in the upcoming episodes. I've got really special episodes planned for you in August, and I can't wait to share that with you. No expert, just something really fun. Um, Yeah. And I can't wait to share that with you. But for now, let's really channel our attention and our focus onto the use of testosterone therapy. Dr. Rebecca Glazer retired from breast cancer surgery and is now involved in the research of testosterone therapy by pellet implant and its impact on health and breast cancer prevention. And Rebecca is just such an amazing person because she doesn't do mainstream cancer treatment. She's really quite unique in what she offers, in what she's trying to do. And she says herself that she has been dedicated to treating and improving the quality of life in breast cancer patients. And I think that's the most amazing thing about Rebecca. She's really passionate about looking into the eyes of the patients she sits with and really trying to help that patient. And without further ado, I've collated all of your questions from uh, Instagram and our Facebook community. I've wrapped them all up in this conversation for Rebecca to answer. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me, Danny. That's great. So we really want to talk about testosterone. I want to know all about you. I want to know about your research. I want to get into the nitty gritty of it all. But before we do so, give us a little overview of the importance of testosterone in women, regardless of a history of cancer. What does it do for us? Well, one of the most misunderstood things is estrogen. Okay, they, a lot of people think estrogen is the female hormone, and that's not the truth. Our most abundant, our most, the highest level of hormones in our body is testosterone or the androgens. And in women, Testosterone is the precursor for estradiol, which is the main estrogen in both men and women. One thing that's not understood by a lot of healthcare practitioners is that only 20% of a woman's testosterone 
is measurable as testosterone in the blood. We receive 80% of our testosterone at the cellular level from the adrenal precursors, androstenedione and DHEA. So that becomes a problem when you're replacing testosterone, you have to replace enough to replace the declining adrenal hormones also. So that's a very controversial point, but I think if um, physicians understood basic physiology, they would see why this is so. Fascinating, Rebecca. So tell me a little bit about you. Um, all I know is that you were a breast surgeon and you're now doing all this amazing research. Give us a little insight. Give us a little insight into you, your story, your passion. I was born on a farm, the middle of six kids. We moved to the city when I was six. And you go to school, you go to college, you go to med school, you go to residency. And I chose general surgery as my residency. So I actually trained in general surgery and then um, did a lot of the early work on the laparoscopic surgery, and then later on the sentinel node biopsies. So a lot of my early research was on the sentinel node biopsies, which I'm sure most of the listeners are aware replaces the old um, axillary lymph node dissection. And then I started probably when I was 45 or 50, seeing all these women come into my office on antidepressants. And I thought, what's going on here? You know, they had breast problems and they were on antidepressants. And we started looking at hormones. David Zava and I did out of ZRT laboratory. And we looked at women with breast cancer and without. And we did see a difference in those women. And we see higher levels of estrogen in relationship to testosterone and the androgens. So I also think that was a problem with all these women with breast pain, do you know what I mean? Coming in on antidepressants or with breast cancer. So I started looking at hormones and then I started looking more closely at testosterone. I never expected that finding. I thought it was going to be in progesterone. I thought it would, you know, so that was kind of, I never chose a path. I was always led there. <laughs> that is fascinating, isn't it? How one thing leads right. leads to the next. It's when we talk about hormones, especially for people who've had a cancer diagnosis or a breast cancer diagnosis, it's almost such an icky subject to talk about. Uh, a lot of the emphasis is given on estrogen. We think estrogen causes all of our problems or actually the lack of estrogen causes a lot of our problems. Right. But when I heard your introduction, that's only part of the problem you're saying. Right. Right. And if you replace testosterone and I use the subcutaneous pellet implants, I did the creams in the past. I think the vaginal creams work well, but the topical creams, I just haven't had the success that I have with the hormone pellet implants. And basically you get a continuous release of testosterone that gets to the cell and you make the estradiol. I rarely have to give patients extra or additional estradiol. There are some cases, but there's also some cases of patients that make too much estradiol and I have to block it. So um, testosterone is the major hormone. It is a major precursor to estradiol. So Rebecca, this is going to be really quite interesting for so many people at home who've had a cancer diagnosis, particular breast cancer, who have been told by their physicians, by the oncology surgery team, that hormone replacement therapy is not an option. And right. as and we, yeah, sorry, and as we understand it here in the UK, hormone replacement therapy would be estrogen, progesterone for women with a womb, and possibly even testosterone. Although testosterone isn't even very spoken about for women without <laughs> a cancer diagnosis, right? So you're talking about something that is very far <laughs> reachable, almost, right? And I, it really bothers me when they say hormone replacement therapy, when they mean estrogen or estrogen progesterone replacement therapy, because of the point you just made, 
Do you know what I mean? And a lot of breast cancer patients are told no hormone therapy when in fact, testosterone, particularly with an aromatase inhibitor or estrogen blocker can be very, very beneficial. And we've got 10 year data coming or 15 year data coming out this year on the prevention study and 10 year data coming out on our breast cancer study where we don't increase recurrences. In fact, we lower recurrences. So that should be published later this year. So it's very beneficial, but more importantly, it's about the quality of life of these survivors. I even get referrals from some oncologists when the patient can't tolerate the estrogen blocker, but that's physicians that know my work. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit and let's look at all of the different scenarios, because I know people at home are going to listen thinking, well, I am about to start on um, an aromatase inhibitor, or I've been on it for, for many years, or I've had a cancer that wasn't estrogen driven, for example, like a triple negative cancer. So let's do a little bit of a compartmentalized conversation. Before we do so, and we go into different cancers, let's talk symptoms, because in the UK, and I've looked it up just to be sure, we say that testosterone supplementation should only be considered in women who complain of low sexual desire after a biosocial approach has excluded other causes such as relationships and psychological and medication. Are you talking about just the improvement of low libido or what are the benefits when you talk about testosterone? Okay, that's a great question. And I obviously disagree strongly with that position. And we've done studies, uh, both in women with and without breast cancer, and we use a validated survey, you know, so we've got the data, testosterone alone, okay, and we can say this because in the breast cancer patients, the estrogen blocker was given. So we know it's testosterone's effect at the androgen receptor, testosterone alone helps with sleep, okay, energy, muscle mass, obviously bone density, physical and mental fatigue. Um, heart arrhythmias, joint pain, pain's another big one that testosterone really has an impact on. It obviously helps with the vaginal symptoms, the urinary symptoms. It, it reverses incontinence in a number of women. So it's not just estrogen. Testosterone has an effect at the androgen receptor. And the androgen receptor is located in every single organ system. And that's what people don't understand. Yes, it improves sex drive and libido, but that's the tip of the iceberg. You know, think about it, the brain, the bones, the skin, the heart, muscles, lungs. It it helps with a lot of chronic lung diseases and asthma. You don't think about that when you think about testosterone. It helps with GI symptoms. So I disagree strongly with that. And I believe physiology is on my side. Yeah. And this um, statement is something I just found now on the British Menopause Society website. And it is a big bugbear for people in the UK, for women who haven't had cancer, for example, that it's not available. We haven't even got a single product licensed for women in the UK. And it's such an underservice, isn't it, for women in, Mm -hmm. in general. Before we go into some other benefits that aren't to do with the symptoms, but more with your uh, breast cancer tumor size or recurrence reduction. How long has testosterone been used in the world? Is this a fairly new thing? (laughs) Have you, how, where does it start for women? Okay, well, I know probably the late 30s, 1930s, and there's data on testosterone pellets used in breast cancer survivors as far back as the 1930s, 1937, 1939. So we know this is not something I invented. Obviously, it's not something I invented. 
I just made it a little bit better by adding the aromatase inhibitor, you know, to the testosterone. But there were excellent results back in the 1930s, early 40s on testosterone and breast cancer. So it's been used that long. 1940s, uh, they, they use it in women to treat PMS, dysmenorrhea, uh, excess uterine bleeding. So we've always known that at certain organs, it has the opposite effect of estrogen and that there was a balancing effect. So this is something that goes back 80 years plus. Wow. I, I kind of let, like them think if it goes back for so long, why isn't it more known? Why isn't it more used across the world? I think it dropped in popularity when Premarin and Provera came out. I'm not sure about that. But then the marketing, the advertising, the estrogen push to women, and that was all pharmaceutical driven. I guess it was as corrupt back then as it is now. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. So we've talked about some of the symptoms away from low libido of how testosterone can help. How can it help? You just earlier said uh, in the statistics of 10-year follow-ups for breast cancer survivors. What have you seen there? Tumor size, recurrence, rate, what, what happens? Okay, well, um, we do have a study where we looked at all the breast cancer patients prospectively, and we marked every insert, every dose, do you know I mean? And we followed them. The purpose of the study was to follow for recurrent disease, okay? Ipsilateral, meaning in the same breast that breast cancer was, or contralateral, okay, the opposite breast. And we do see a decrease in what would be expected, do you know what I mean, in recurrence rates. Now, this is a small study. We've got over 270 patients, but we're following about 100 and some that had the lumpectomy. We also follow the mastectomy patients for recurrent disease too. So we see a reduced incidence of that. We see an increase in survival in all stages, including metastatic disease, who we look at separately, people whose tumor has spread to other organs. So we've got that. We've also um, published some case reports. And basically we look at um, some people come to see me because they don't want conventional therapy. I never tell them not to do it. Do you know I mean, I, I encourage conventional therapy, but there's some patients who have made that choice. And so we treat them with testosterone and acetal alone. And we've seen tumors shrink on therapy. We've seen tumors go completely away on therapy. And I just saw a patient the other day who's like five years out where she came with a tumor fixed to her chest wall and she refused all conventional therapy because of what her mother went through. And she saw how it, what her mother went through and how it killed her. It was her perspective. I think there's a lot of things to look at, but very little interest. Yeah. And when you say we've seen, I know uh, as a patient myself, and when we talk in our chat groups and forums, we often say, but what's the data? Like, is it a randomized control trial? Or when we look about the use of, um, hormone replacement therapy, like estrogen in breast cancer survivors, people are always like, what, what are the randomized control trials? What, right. what data, how do we, like, what data do you refer to? Or I think the strongest data, well, like I say, most of my, my is prospective observational, okay? And really a randomized uh, retrospect, uh, randomized trial is for like a new drug where you're seeing if it's effective or not, okay? We're looking at a long-term comparing our group to a control group or to like the SEER data or something like that. And that's a prospective. They're used for two different purposes. Some people feel the randomized controlled trial is the gold standard and it probably is, but it's for different indications than a prospective observational study. So this is the most I can do. I'm not going to randomize someone not to get therapy. You know, they're coming to me because they're suffering terribly and I'm going to put them on therapy. 
So I did the best I could and we published the data and we're going to publish more data, hopefully. But I think the, um, the proof is in the pudding. When you see a tumor disappear, do you know what I mean? When you see a patient's quality of life go from barely being able to walk into my office, being helped by her husband, to wrecking her bike with her grandkids. I mean, she was riding a bike and, and she ended up wrecking it, you know? So you see that quality of life improve and survival's actually extended even in patients that we've seen with metastatic breast cancer. Is it enough for everyone to start doing this? I think it's enough to offer it to patients with the, you know, and say, hey, there's no prospective randomized studies. It'd be great to do, but there's no money for a drug that's 90 years old. I mean, there's there's just nothing. I get it. And when I talk about my results, it's only with the pellets. You can't just slap a little testosterone gel on the wrist or something and expect the same results. There's a lot of aromatase in the skin and the subcutaneous tissue. You've got to be careful about that in women with breast cancer that's hormone receptor positive. So when I talk about my results and the efficacy, that's on the pellets. Because remember, I used to do the topicals and I didn't see the same type results. So when I talk about my results, it's on the pellet implant. And England used to have it available. Organized. They don't talk, they don't talk about it now a lot now. I think they talk a lot about an Androfem is a version that women can order from um, Australia. I think it's an Australian product, or the tester gel tostran are the male versions that are given in female quantities. I don't think the pellets are talked about much anymore. I don't think they are. And that's a shame because I know some physicians from England that used to use the pellets all the time. And I'm not certain about this, but when they bought Organon, the people that came out with a long acting testosterone shot bought Organon, who made the pellets for both men and women, and then they shut it down. Mm, it's, It's so interesting. So can you explain a little bit more of why the pellets might work better than a topical testosterone? I think it's the consistent, continuous release just like the adrenal glands release, just like the ovaries release hormones. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is dependent on blood flow and activity, just like the uh, adrenal hormones are released. So I think it's that consistent release of the testosterone and the consistent testosterone that gets to the cellular level. There's many variables on the skin and I treat with higher levels. That's something that people um, criticize me for, but we see no adverse events. Do you know what I mean? I explained why I treat with higher levels or higher doses, higher levels, um, because you've got to replace the adrenal contribution to testosterone, which is 80% in females and 50% in men. So yes, I run higher levels. And I think that's why I see the results I do. So Rebecca, let's think of a patient and this patient has had breast cancer. And let's assume this patient had had uh, breast cancer that was uh, hormone driven. Okay. And their oncologist put them on an aromatase inhibitor, right? That's okay. why a patient would be offered an aromatase inhibitor. What types of aromatase inhibitors do you have in America? Are they the same that are in yes, the UK? Yes, they're the same. Uh, I use mainly a nastrozole in the pellets, but I also do a pellet with letrozole. I think it might be a little bit more potent, but I'm not sure about that. Um, XMS stain. So yes, um, I think we have the same types of aromatase inhibitors. And so women would come and say, I've had breast cancer. My oncologist has given me an aromatase inhibitor. I've got awful symptoms. They come and find you with uh-huh. their symptoms and you put them onto the pellet, right? You, you help them right. with the pellet. Right. And I never tell a patient to stop an oral aromatase inhibitor if the oncologist has put them on unless the oncologist is agreeable. 
But what I do is put a little bit less of the aromatase inhibitor in the pellet. I just like when it's uh, mixed in with the testosterone, it gets released simultaneously with the testosterone, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I never tell a patient to stop a therapy that was prescribed by an oncologist. A lot of times I'll go back to the oncologist and say, hey, you know, especially if they have GI symptoms, but we do follow estradiol levels. We follow them very frequently to make sure that that aromatase inhibitor is not, uh, that it is effective, that estradiol levels stay below 30, below 15, and even sometimes below five. And that depends on the ratio of testosterone to estradiol, but we follow them at week four. And then before they come back in the next time to make sure that we're blocking the right, uh, that we're blocking the estrogen satisfactory, satisfactorily. Because a lot of people worry that the testosterone gets converted into estrogen, right? Because for right. anyone at home, not kind of like connecting the two, that is the worry. So if you don't have right. an aromatase inhibitor, you take testosterone, like how much is made into estrogen? Like loads or little? What is, is it a lot or a little? It depends on mm. the patients. That's okay. driven by genetics. There's some people that over aromatize. And I think that's who we see more breast cancer in. Uh, obesity, you have more of the enzyme aromatase made in the fatty tissue, diet, processed foods, you know, so there's a lot of things that can contribute to aromatase activity, including alcohol. So that depends on it. Now on active tumor, let's say someone's got metastatic disease, that tumor, that estrogen receptor positive tumor actually makes aromatase. It actually makes its own aromatase. So those are the people you want that estradiol less than five. Okay, that's where you want to keep that estradiol less than 15 or less than five, because you know that tumor makes aromatase and causes itself to grow. But keeping the ratio of testosterone high and the lower estradiol can control that tumor for years. Wow. Okay. So versus just lowering estradiol and having this little level of testosterone, like with an aromatase inhibitor alone. Because yeah. we know that when testosterone fits into that androgen receptor on the tumor, it decreases the tumor, prevents growth, prevents stimulation. So, okay. So you test women's bloods and then they come in and, and you put them on testosterone, you test before they start and a month later, what do you see within that month? Anything, or does it take longer for symptoms to disappear? How does it, how does oh, it work? Everybody's different, but on average symptoms start to improve within a week you know, they're sleeping better, they're calm, they don't have the anxiety, the irritability, that's what testosterone can really help. They're stronger mentally and physically. So um, that's huge. And pain, wow. like the aromatase inhibitors. I mean, one of the common side effects is joint and arthritic pain. Absolutely. And there's actually, bringing this up, a double blind randomized study looking at testosterone with aromatase induced arthralgias. And what they did is they didn't see a, a big difference in pain, but I think that's because the dose we used was too low. We used a very low dose in that study, but they saw improvements in sleep, skin, sense of well-being, and they saw a lot of other improvements, even on that lower dose, you know? So there has been a double-blind randomized prospective study on testosterone pellets in women with aromatase-induced arthralgias. Wow. I just thought that's why I had to bring it up. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so fascinating. I can't, you know, I'm always trying to think of the patient pathway, right? I, I, I never feel like I speak on my behalf, but I kind of like speak on behalf of all the thousands of women listening to the show. And I kind of always think, what do they want to know? And I think what a lot of women are going to think, well, how are these oncologists feeling that have kind of 
patients have come to you, they've gone back to their oncologist and they're saying, well, I'm now also on testosterone. Doesn't that ring alarm bells for some oncologists? Because so many oncologists are totally no hormones, no hormones. That's it. You've got yes. no options. You stay on the aromatase inhibitor. That's your lot. That is exactly the way it is for the majority of women and the majority of the oncologists. No hormones. They don't have the time or the 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 curiosity to look into testosterone and the data on it. So these women that come to me, a lot of times are driven, you know, they face their oncologist, you know, if they won't do it, who can I see, you know? So these are the women that really, really need help. And you've got to be your own advocate. There's a lot of oncologists are across the board. Surgeons are even worse. And I can say that because I'm a surgeon, you know, I had a patient get breast cancer, a, a recurrent breast cancer, and the surgeon told her to get the pellet out. And I'm like, what? The surgeon knew nothing about this. Do you know what I mean? So you're right. That's a, that's a obstacle for patients. It's an obstacle for patients. And I feel sorry for them because they can go from being miserable or not even just not feeling good. And they can have a great, healthy, vibrant life and yeah. decrease recurrence. <laughs> yeah. And I know you've followed patients for many years. You sent me an abstract to uh, some of your findings. You have followed people for a long time. Uh, what's the average time people are on aromatase inhibitors that you have been with? Is it five or 10 years that they're put on breast cancer patients? That changes. Yes. This is a developing process. Do you know what I mean? We used to think, oh yeah, five years and you can take them off. And so I look at each patient individually, the risk of disease. If they have a stage two or stage three disease, I want to keep them on aromatase inhibitors as long as they tolerate it and they're feeling great on it. There's no reason not to, because Despite everyone thinking, oh, 10 years and you're done, there's recurrences up to 20 years, okay? So there's no reason not to keep the stage two and three, and of course, metastatics on it for life, stage two and three on aromatase inhibitors as long as they tolerate. And them tolerating, it means no hot flashes or minimal, feeling great and all this, because they're the ones that probably made too much estradiol from testosterone to begin with. Stage one, I'm leaning more towards stage one as keeping it on as long as they tolerate it. But what I might do is when they have symptoms, let's say they have hot flashes or can't sleep. And those are the two symptoms of my estrogen getting too low. Okay. Energy, muscle mass, all the other stuff is testosterone pain. That's all testosterone. Estrogen is basically for sleep, which testosterone takes care of most women um, and urinary symptoms. Uh, so what I'll do for them is lower the amount of aromatase inhibitor in the pellet or increase the amount of testosterone and change that proportion. So they're still getting a tolerable amount of aromatase inhibitor. And they, I want them to feel great. It's their quality of life. And they've all, the one line, the one thing that anyone needs to take away from this podcast is you have to eat a whole food diet. I am strict with that. It's the processed foods. We know they convert to sugar. They they're cause inflammation. So it's not just breast cancer. It's every chronic disease. So I'm uh, pretty much strict on that, but they don't listen. And I was going to ask you about that anyway. That was going to be my closing question for the podcast. <laughs> so I'm glad you bring it up now because we always talk about food. Uh, we'll get back to that uh, in a moment. You say it's about quality of life. I agree with you because staying on aromatase inhibitors for many women that I have spoken to, it feels like it's a bit of a trade-off. Women expect to feel really quite rubbish. They expect to have many bad symptoms. Many women are so fearful of all the stories they've heard, they are really quite worried to even start them. Mm -hmm. And so many women think, well, if I can stay on them for a little bit, at least, like they're really trying to sort of 
angle forwards for how long they can tolerate them. But what you're saying is you can perhaps tolerate them for even longer if you can help oh, with testosterone. Right. You can tolerate them. Some women can tolerate, obviously, the metastatic patients tolerate them. I've got the metastatic patients that feel amazing on testosterone and they're on a high dose of aromatase inhibitor in their pellet, but they're also on higher doses of testosterone. So yes, it makes it more tolerable. And I, and that sometimes oncologists send me patients who cannot tolerate the oral. So I get people, Ohio state's very open-minded about it. And some local I'm in Dayton, Ohio, some local physicians will send me patients if they can't tolerate the oral, or I guess if they complain enough. Yeah. And we we spoke about the pellets of testosterone, the aromatase inhibitor. That's not always giving us a, a, an implant, is it? Not always. Certainly just certain populations where they make too much estrogen from the testosterone. So even on my patients without breast cancer, about 15% get the aromatase inhibitor in the pellet because they make too much estrogen from the testosterone. Okay. Interesting. Uh, premenopausal females. Um, that's another group that benefit from that aromatase inhibitor when they're going through that perimenopause that where their testosterone is dropped and their estrogen, they have that PMS, the anxiety, the irritability, those psychological complaints that they treat with antidepressants. You get their estrogen lower and testosterone imbalance and those women are fine. Wow. Gosh, there's so much newness in here. You're kind of like it's like an explosion of all these other things we have learned and heard. And <laughs> it's it's crazy in a way. Uh, Rebecca, do you work with people that have had uh, triple negative breast cancer? Yeah. Yes, I do. And you can put them on testosterone alone. You don't know that that's going to directly help their cancer, but it really helps immune function, T-killer cells. Uh, it keeps them healthy. Do you know what I mean? It helps with sugar metabolism. Do you know what I mean? They're now looking, at least in men, how testosterone has an impact on diabetes and glucose metabolism. So quality of life and, and triple negative, but um, also immune function is huge. That's another way testosterone works. Yeah, because, you know, in the UK, there is a little bit of a, not a controversy, but some oncologists are very happy for some younger patients, for example, who go through menopause early as a result of their breast cancer uh, treatment. Some oncologists are more happy to put these women onto hormone replacement therapy and other oncologists will say absolutely no. Some oncologists right. will say, yeah, you, you'll get to a few years, three, five years down the line from primary diagnosis. Uh, they might have had a double mastectomy. Uh, there is no reason why you shouldn't go on testosterone. Others will say never, ever. So it's really difficult to manage as a patient, isn't it? It's right. And I think that's why these podcasts and groups can support the patient in their journey. And it's got to be a journey and they've got to be in control. But not everybody is. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally hear what you're saying. And I'm kind of thinking. What do we do if we're in the UK, for example, and we're interested in this? Like I, I can hear from you that it takes a physician or finding a physician who knows exactly what they're doing. A, they need to be familiar with pellets because from your research, it's we're not talking about application of testosterone, you're talking pellets. So we need to find a physician that works with pellets. We need to find someone who is happy to uh, monitor a blood test, right? To do that, to see where the right. estrogen is. How do we go about like, it's like, I don't know, it's not like there is a trip advisor. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would hope that somebody that's passionate about this would, um, I don't know, do you have compounding pharmacies over there that make 
drugs for patients? Yeah. Were they yeah. compound drugs for patients? Yeah. Oh, the pellets are very easy to make. Okay. You do need an autoclave to sterilize them, but you get a pellet press, you get the testosterone powder, a little steric acid powder, and then there's all powder. Okay. You mix it up in a Vitamix or something and you press them, put them in packages and autoclave them. Okay. It's not rocket science. And then, but you have to have someone that's dedicated to it. Use a trocar. It takes about five minutes to put in, but who's going to be crazy enough to do that except me. Do you know what I mean? But it works. Now there's other manufacturing pharmacies in the United States. And I can talk to some of them that may be able to ship pellets to England. But if a manufacturing, we have manufacturing pharmacies here that can do that. I don't know what's available in England. You see, of we course. have compounding pharmacies. Like yeah. when I the, the other way I like to deliver testosterone is a vaginal cream because it's better absorbed than topical on skin. And I usually combine it with estriol and sometimes progesterone all in a single vaginal cream. And breast cancer patients do real well on that. There's data on estriol that it is safe in breast cancer patients. So, And you're giving it vaginally. We have more data that vaginal estradiol is safe, but I prefer the estriol and testosterone combination. So that's my second choice if you can't get pellets. That's fascinating. So across the world, let's look at across the world and how many uh, breast cancer patients we have and everyone kind of gets treated in a similar path, but with a lot of differences depending on the healthcare system, depending on their surgeon, oncologist. Across the world, are there people that believe what you believe? Um, yes, there are. <laughs> Um, yes, there are. And in fact, they're doing studies in Australia on this for breast density, the combination pellet implant, the testosterone with an astrozole. Um, there's a little bit of support. It's the Australian group. They're very much into testosterone and its benefit for um, breast cancers. And they're looking at products, developing products for it. And that might be why they're interested. Yeah, uh, I get I get emails from all over the world, actually, a group in Israel, but they're few and far between. But the people that start it continue to do it. It's, it's a grassroots effort and that's how it's going to come about. Yeah. But there's a lot absolutely. of preconceived notions, even on the people that do pellets in the United States, they think you have to give an estrogen pellet and there's nothing I can say to make them understand that you don't have to. And I don't like the estradiol pellets. I do it about once a year in a patient without a uterus that really needs it. Do you know what I mean? And when I do it, I um, combine it with testosterone for a better release but it has been associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. And I try to tell a lot of these organizations or groups that do the mass trainings here to watch out for that. And they don't listen. Not that I'm right. I'm just saying they don't even want to think about it. Yeah. I think a, a little bit maybe of a worry for people at home might think, or, or might be that we hear higher levels of testosterone. We think, well, what are the side effects though? We hear maybe hair loss or on the head or maybe hair growth where you apply it I mean I know you're talking an implant but for the women who apply yeah. testosterone the side effects of testosterone are acne okay you some people get acne it's not a lot of people but we actually put finasteride in a pellet and that takes care of the acne because it's actually how much dehydrotestosterone you make in the skin and if the acne is so bad the patient can go down on their dose you do see body hair growth in some women, a minority of women that are have a, a genetic predisposition to that, okay? We do not see scalp hair loss. 
we actually see scalp hair regrowth in women. And we published that data. It was an observational study, but most women with age-related hair loss, you know how hair thins as you get older, with age-related hair loss actually regrow their hair. That's another time when sometimes we put finasteride in the pellet, okay? Because that can actually help it more than testosterone alone. But two-thirds of women with age-related hair um, loss going on testosterone therapy were able to regrow their hair or it got better, improved hair growth. So that's one of the rumors. That's one of the myths on testosterone that I don't see in practice. I'm not saying somebody else might not see it. And you're right, topical on skin, you're putting it right over the skin. That could cause a local hair growth. But um, yeah. Yeah. So those are the main side effects. There's no adverse effects to the heart. We don't see an increased risk of blood clots. Um, look at it compared to side effects from drugs. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. It's like a little explosion of the mind of everything that gets spoken about uh, speaking to you. I, I love it. Can we talk about one more patient example? Because I, I've spoken to a few women who are really interested in your work. They found physicians here in the UK who are happy to talk to them about testosterone after their estrogen-driven breast cancer. This one young patient is suffering with hot flashes, anxiety, but also really decreased sex drive, low libido. Right. And so initially she was saying, or we were discussing maybe a very low dose of an antidepressant, like something like venoflaxine in the UK can be prescribed, can really help with the hot flashes, the, the low mood, and probably though puts a break on the sex drive like some other antidepressants do. So that was one of her sort of modalities of what she could do should her symptoms get worse. So now she's thinking, should she maybe entertain you know, having going down the testosterone route with her doctor that is happy to to work with her on this. What do you think? Are you like I it's a no brainer? I yeah. think she should go down the testosterone route. And I think another thing women could think about is a little IM injection twice a week with an oral aromatase inhibitor if you don't have the pellets or vaginal testosterone and do a vaginal dose high enough to get systemic levels. And it'll take care of the urinary symptoms. It'll take care of the bladder. And if you do a high enough vaginal cream dose, that can sometimes help with the systemic symptoms better than topical on skin. Okay, why don't you start your testosterone pellets? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I will. But Rebecca, for someone who really thinks I'm going to try and find a doctor to work with me on this, they might still have worry, right? It's not a mainstream sort of thing. Can you just, what happens if you don't feel well on it? Can you just take the pellet out? How easy is that? Oh, no, it just dissolves on its own. Oh, yeah. wow. okay. And that's in the consent. We don't remove pellets. Uh, that is rarely, rarely a problem since I quit doing the estradiol pellets. The estradiol had the fluid retention, the anxiety, the irritability and all that. And that was 15 years ago because that's how I was trained too. So no, I've rarely had to remove the pellets. You've got to be careful if someone has a history of mental illness. Those are the, the people that suddenly want to blame every symptom on the pellet, you know? And so that's who you have to be careful putting pellets into. So if you've got a bipolar patient or someone that, that has a history of, I'm not just talking about anxiety and depression. I mean, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about real mental illness. Those are the people that are going to want that pellet out. Mm. Yeah. So outside of that, no. Yeah. I haven't removed a pellet in 15, you know, I haven't even tried to remove a pellet in 15, 20 years. Wow. So tell me, are you open for doctors from abroad to email you and say, Hey, I've got a patient who's interested in this. I know nothing about it. Can you send me stuff? Is that what you do well, between doctors? 
Yeah, it is. And I do that all the time, but I can't start to get emails from every doctor twice a week with this patient, this patient. Okay. And that's why there's two resources. And one of them is my website and you can get that at the end, hormonebalance.org. But the other one is um, where I get my trocar kits from it's trocarkit.com. And basically I have put some of my protocols on there. It's for physicians versus the hormonebalance.org, you know? So there's some um, protocols on there and they can go through that website and find some of how I manage it. Of course, my art, a lot of the articles are there and links in the presentation, but that has more what physicians might want when they're starting out. Fantastic. That's great. And now do talk to me about diet. Why are you, why have you got such a bugbear about diet? You're, you're trained as a surgeon. Surgeons don't often talk about diet. My surgeon never talked about diet. Actually, I was quite dismissed when I talk, wanted to talk about diet. Oh, and I've had other people t- being told by an oncologist, diet doesn't matter. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's clear evidence. And that's, I've seen this for 40 years, th- this diet connection. And even in our patients that recur locally, ipsilateral, contralateral locally, almost all of them had a high BMI that got the recurrence rates. And we're still at 50% of what they sh- we should have had, but it- it's so diet related. I know who I'm worried about. I know who I'm not worried about. And I don't know why they can't eat a whole food diet, meat, vegetables, whole grains. I'm not talking about whole grain bread. And your breads and food are probably better over in Europe than the US. It's all processed over here. So you feel better. You stay healthier, but nobody wants to do it. Sweets, processed sweets, you know, but that's a choice. And I've long time learned you can't change the way anyone eats. You can tell them every time they come in there, but you can't change the way they eat. Or it's they think really they're healthy. Oh, I'm drinking my protein drink. Well, that's all processed stuff, you know. And um, so, I, I saw a woman. I saw a woman the other day saying uh, she's in uh, medically onset menopause, and I saw her saying, "Oh, I'm now doing smoothies." And when I kind of looked what's in her smoothie, it was just purely all fruit and ginger and uh, chili. And I thought, oh, my God, that's going to make your hot flashes so much worse. <laughs> <Chili>. <laughs> the, the ginger and the chili and all the fruits, which is just going to spike your blood sugar. You know, there was nothing. It was quite interesting because some people think they're making the right choices by changing. And I made so many dietary mistakes myself over the last many many years (laughs) exactly but it's important to keep bringing it up isn't it and I never thought that you would be so passionate to bring it up yourself but you were earlier I thought I'm going to ask Rebecca even in the papers I write I say you know a confounding factor might be that we talk about diet all the time and the people that come in to do this are more and stay with it are more oriented towards health you know so that could be part of the decline and decrease incidence of breast cancer in women without breast cancer, we see a, a decrease by about, we prevent about half the breast cancers, but how much of that is that diet? How much of that is the healthy patient? But I can yeah. tell you, they're not all healthy. They're not all eating right. <laughs> Thank you for giving my mind and my brain a little explosion today, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear what people are going to say with their feedback on the podcast, because we usually get a lot of emails and I share them on social media and with you. And it'll be great to just get the conversation going, isn't it? Between people, physicians, doctors, and just talk about it more. Yeah. It was lovely to talk to you. It was fun. I hope you found this conversation helpful. I'm always really impressed with doctors and practitioners who really think outside the box. They kind of like 
do things a different way and they're really invested in helping their patients. And I can't wait to see what happens in the next many years, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and how testosterone might be used in patients with a history of cancer. If you think, yeah, that's been really interesting, but what do I do now? Then perhaps jump into our Facebook group and get a thread going and ask others, has anyone tried it? Has anyone spoken to their oncologist about it? How did that conversation go? Has anyone found a menopause specialist who's happy to prescribe it? And you could just make it uh, a really engaged and a really active sort of uh, conversation in the Facebook group. Sometimes it can be really helpful to speak to others and hear about other people's experiences. And I know already that I'm going to bring women onto the podcast in the autumn who have used testosterone therapy after a history of cancer. And I can't wait to share their story with you. But for now, also head over to menopauseandcancer.org, our new online website. We're populating the resources as we speak. We've got lots of doctors giving us written resources. Takes a little time, so there's not loads on there right now, but the website looks good. And I think we've got lots of decent information on there. So share it with your uh, specialist care nurses, your oncologists, your specialists, your surgeons, anyone who th you think deals with women who are being pushed into menopause because of their cancer diagnosis, share our resources with. I'd love to spread the word, help me spread the word. And if you want to get involved even more and maybe distribute leaflets, become an ambassador, a volunteer, help us with our launch event in the autumn, then get in touch. Again, I'm putting the email into the show notes here. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to work with you. And most importantly, we want to do this together so that we really feel as a community of women, we've got each other's backs and we can create the change that I really, really think we all so desperately need and deserve. And with that, happy end of July. I love you and leave you. And I speak to you in August with a very special four weeks of August episodes. Can't wait. <music>